Full Steam with Jess Kelly. Brought to you by Work Human, the number one best workplace in Ireland. And we're hiring. Visit workhuman.com. This is News Talk. This is Full Steam, a series that profiles some of the most influential people from the world of science, technology, engineering, arts and maths, all of whom just happen to be women. In recent weeks, we've heard from the CEO of Vodafone Ireland and the Data Protection Commissioner. But my guest today is Ashling Hassel, the head of Airbnb Ireland and the global VP of Community Support. With a career spanning more than 25 years and experience working with companies such as Sage, Vodafone and Symantec, Hassel has plenty to bring to the table. We began our conversation by discussing her early life. I grew up in Glasnevin, uh, went to Holy Faith there uh, for right up till senior school, uh, started in junior school. Um, and then, um, I, yeah, well, so that's where I grew up, the north side. And uh, I got a scholarship when I was actually in sixth year. And so I ended up uh, moving over to United World College in Wales. And I did two years there and did the International Baccalaureate. Oh, cool. And what kind of child were you? Were you academic? Were you sporty? Were you focused? Were you scatty? <laughs> Definitely not scatty, but um, I was always a good kid, you know, so, um, and I was always, I suppose I was always the brainiac, I suppose, in, in the class, like, um, so I'd kind of, you know, just do really well without an awful lot of effort, mm-hmm. which used to, used to annoy other people, <laughs> but, um, but also a mix of sports, like I played sports all the way through school, so big in hockey, and um, that was really what I spent most of my time doing outside of school, right up through, you know, sixth year. And do you have siblings, or are you an only child? No, youngest of six. Oh so, wow, big family. Yes, so I had two brothers and three sisters. Um, and my sisters had all gone to the same school, so I got all the hand-me-down uniforms as well. Um, but uh, yeah, we all are pretty tight-knit. And uh, um, again, coming last, I suppose you get to benefit from all your, your older siblings' experiences. So um, one of my sisters was big into hockey as well, which is kind of why I started that. And um, yeah, but fairly diverse family, but we all kind of yeah, grew up in that same environment. And did you always have a clear vision of what you wanted to do or, you know, did that kind of come later? Um, no, not really. Like when I was growing up, um, I went through different phases, as I think every kid does. Um, one of the things I really thought I would end up doing would be was acting. So um, I joined Dublin Youth Theatre um, uh, when I was in secondary and really enjoyed just doing amateur dramatics and um, won a prize when you're in the Royal Shakespeare Festival. And so I thought that would be my path. Um, but I also was fairly... Uh, interest in science and so I had started doing a lot of science um, as part of you know the leaving cert etc and so I was gravitating more towards that towards um, as I was finishing up and so that's kind of where I ended up gravitating and put the uh, acting on hold. And were you encouraged into the science spaces or you know was that something that you just fought to, towards yourself? Um, I don't know if I had to fight for it, but I definitely leaned towards it. So, um, like, none of my family is at all scientific or anyway that inclined. They're more arty, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was very different in that sense. But I just um, always found it interesting and um, just really enjoyed Always used to love chemistry. Um, and so just kind of felt that it was just kind of you gravitate to something that appeals to you. Um, had a great chemistry teacher. I think teachers are really important in terms of fostering, you know, the interest in yeah. subjects. Um, and so if I hadn't gone to United World College, I would have uh, done probably a science degree. Um, I actually did pass maths for the leaving. Um, and that was because, um, going back into sort of girls in tech, 
I wasn't really encouraged to be good at math. You know, I was always told, oh yeah, you're okay, whatever. Um, and there was kind of a, almost a, an ex, um, you were an exception if you did honours maths. So I ended up, I started honours maths and then fell back to pass. Um, and so that, you know, that limits your option, obviously, because you have to have honours maths for an engineering degree. Mm -hmm. So actually going to um, Wales, I took the higher level math and um, ended up doing great in the IB. And then when I came back to Trinity, um, I went into the engineering um, faculty. So it is interesting how small little kind of moments in your life do make a, a substantive change, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, it's all about who's around you and what you're encouraged into. How did you find living away from home at a young age? Did you, did you like it? Um, it did take a bit of adjustment, like you have to think, I went from an all-girls convent school into a co-ed uh, dorm environment where, you know, you had to, and also multicultural, so you had to deal with, you know, um, mixed classes, mixed races and mixed cultures and all of that, and it was great, like it was, um, I think they were probably the two most formative years of my young life, um, they just really shaped, I think, my philosophy on life and kind of just taken a bit of an adventure. Um, but it was hard, yeah. I was definitely homesick for a while. Um, but I got a few, you know, my family came over a few times just to kind of keep the connection and bring tea and cake and things like that. But uh, um, made friends there that are still lifelong friends. And I think it just opened my eyes to a bigger kind of horizons, you know. And um, like most of my friends are international for that reason. And it just set me on a path then to do engineering, um, which then, of course, like led me into tech, I suppose. And were you always an outgoing person? Because leaving home at that young age can be quite intimidating. And mm. some people can either, you know, sit in their dorm room quiet the entire time or make the connections that you seem to have made. Mm -hmm. Did that come naturally to you? Um, I would say, yeah, I would say I'm an extrovert. So I do get energy from people. Um, and, um, and I think also um, the way that the college is formed is um, you actually have to do social impact activities. And so I did Beach Rescue. Uh, which is actually trained to be a lifeguard, um, which I, like, trust me, I could hardly swim a length when I started, so it was quite the, the endeavour. But by virtue of, like, you had your classes, but you also had a lot of activities, like mm -hmm. the minute class finished, you had lunch, you're straight into your activities, and so you were always in the thick of things together. And also by doing, um, I think, activities, like the other activity you could do is cliff rescue or um, lifeboat, um, and so they're all community-based activities and they're all focused on you know, obviously in these cases, like saving lives, etc. So it kind of bonds you, I think, through shared activity. And mm -hmm. there was like not a few adventures as well when, you know, you get caught out in the Bristol Channel in a storm <laughs> and things like that. So I think when you, you go through that, you kind of, you know, you make, um, I suppose it breaks down barriers so fast uh, that it makes it much easier to adapt. And so, and even if you're not outgoing, like the first thing they do is they bring you on a hike to the Brecon Beacons for a week in, I would say, basic conditions. Yeah. And so you're trudging through the Brecon Beacons, and of course it's always raining. Um, and so you're, it's usually damp, you're in damp tents, like it's kind of a survival of the fittest, if you will. But that kind of just immediate immersion into sort of a survival mode, I think also kind of just, even if you weren't outgoing, it makes you, brings you out of your shell and, and uh, gets you connected in with everyone. It seems to me, uh, it sounds to me that you, you became sort of more well-rounded because you had the academic side, but then also the adventure side and yeah. the, the connections. Mm -hmm. So when you came back then to Trinity, how did you find that? Did you, did you enjoy that experience? Um, yeah, it was great. I mean, um, I suppose in the same vein, I probably got stuck into trying to keep that balance again. So. Um, got very active in the canoe club um, and started doing that like that was my sport pretty mm -hmm. much through college 
um, and uh, tried a few other clubs. I was disastrous in the rifle club and things like that. But I tried everything just to find kind of what I what kind of um, I was reasonable at, but also had fun at. So I kind of kept that social aspect up all the way through college. Um, probably, as you say, kind of leaning on the you know the experience I'd had in uh, in Wales. So. And was the course um, like what was the gender makeup of it? Was engineering predominantly male, or was there a good balance? In Wales? Uh, no, in sorry, in Trinity. In Trinity. Trinity. Oh no, it was. Uh, I think there was 150 of us in the class, and there was about I think it was 25 or 30 girls. Mm -hmm. So, um, and uh, so no, it was very much skewed, obviously, towards male environment. But um, you know, the girls formed a little. Like we had our own little clique, I think, uh, in terms of like just banding together in a way. But um, yeah, the numbers. I mean, I still think the numbers are, are pretty low. I haven't seen latest stats, mm -hmm. but I don't know how much how better it's gotten. I actually skipped a year because in the middle of, um, after second year I took a year off to go travelling and so I actually experienced two years um, and the second year that I joined was, was no better. Okay. <laughs> so it hadn't changed much year on year at that stage. But um, And uh, where did you go travelling and what kind of prompted that decision then? Um, it was sort of random. I went to um, Boston on a J1 like a lot of people mm -hmm. and um, I just ended up ads, um, answering ads in the paper for jobs and one, one of the jobs uh, well, I asked, actually applied for two jobs and I got them both and I picked one, but uh, one was in a, a store selling canoes because obviously, yeah, yeah, so it was an outdoor fish. adventure store, kind of like um, great outdoors. And then the other one was uh, office manager in Boston Sailing Centre. And so um, anyway, I took the Boston Sailing Centre job and that was a job that was split with this other girl, Mimi, who's still a lifelong friend now. But she, um, she and I just used to run the office for the sailing club, which was basically, it's a great idea. It's a membership-based sailing club, so it basically democratised the sailing. Mm -hmm. um, you could buy a, an annual membership for like $700 or something and um, use the boats for certain hours. And the more you pay, the bigger boats you could get or whatever. So it was actually a very community-based uh, sailing centre. So we ran the office there. And then what prompted the year off was, was coming to the end of the summer and I also used to manage the marina and this beautiful boat sailed in one time. I was like, oh, that's a nice boat. It was a Shannon 50. Stunning if you ever see one. <laughs> and um, I got talking to the crew or whatever and they were heading to the Caribbean. And I was like, oh, well, that sounds really cool, nice, you know. Yeah. So um, I rang home and uh, said, hey, what about taking a year off? Now, you have to remember, like, my family would be quite conservative and, you know, do things, you know, in a generally, you know, kind of textbook way, if mm -hmm. you like. So here was their daughter ringing up saying they're going to take a year off from college, you know, and go off on a boat. So all of that combined, they were um, incredibly worried and thought I'd been kidnapped, but I wasn't. Um, so anyway, I took off in the boat and I worked down in the Caribbean for the winter season and then came back up to Boston in the summer. So it was great. It was a good adventure. Um, sailed offshore for the first time. So sailed from Boston down to Bermuda and Bermuda down to the Caribbean. Um, horrendous weather, but um, found I could, you know, I got sick like the rest of it, <laughs> but uh, survived that and then just, but that, that whole year, it was just a good, um, it was just a good bit of adventure and kind of, uh, I was sort of sorry I hadn't taken a year off between say finishing, you know, the International Baccalaureate and going into college. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of, because a lot of my, a lot of the people I graduated with, like in, in Atlantic College did. Okay. And so I'd seen all these like notes from around the world of, you know, going backpacking everywhere. So it kind of was a bit of catch up for me, but I was, it was really, really good actually just to kind of uh, mature a bit. So. And was that just getting something out of your system or did you ever contemplate, you know, staying, traveling further or staying on the road or anything like that? No, I mean, I did feel I needed to see my degree through. Like, mm -hmm. so it was always a sort of a little kind of 
sabbatical of my own. But um, no, no, I'd be always fairly driven to kind of getting things over the line, you know, and so came back with full intention, like finished my degree and then um, wasn't really sure at that time where, where that would take me, but um, was definitely, I had chosen, the way it works in Trinity, you're probably aware, is you pick, you don't specialise until your third year. So I had been generalist up to then, so it's a good time to take a break if mm -hmm. you're going to take a break. Um, and then I specialised in mechanical manufacturing. So I kind of was going into a new phase anyway. Um, it was hard coming back because mo all my class had moved on. And so you have to kind of do new friendships and everything. But that was the only downside of it, I think, really. And so then when you specialised, did you do work experience? Did you have sort of eyes on the prize of what you want to do when you finally do complete your degree? Um, I did do work experience. I worked in Guinnesses for a summer, oh, which cool. was, uh, yeah, so as a, as a mechanic, <laughs> which is like, um, they had no safety shoes, our, my, uh, myself and another girl in the class, um, and um, a fitter is what we were, but uh, we had, they had no safety shoes our size, because uh, they hadn't had, I don't wow. think they'd had to fit out girls before, so um, they actually had to go to nurses, uh, so we had white safety shoes, which you have to realise, you're already sticking out, you know, in a, in a fairly male dominated environment in your blue um, fitter suit, <laughs> and then we also had these glaringly white uh, shoes to match, so we, we were quite the sight. Um, but it was great experience, and I think what what did that tell me? It told me probably I did want to go into manufacturing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's good <laughs> to be to honest, uh, like it's a tough environment. It's a really tough environment. So um, yeah, probably checked something off rather than added to it. And then honestly, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I finished. I just knew that um, you know I just liked the tech kind of environment. I like I like building things in general, mm -hmm. and um, and then, you know, so I, I wouldn't say I was too, I suppose, deliberate in my career steps. I just sort of like, you know, you come when you graduated at that, well, in that year anyway, um, it was more about getting a job. So yeah. my goal was really to get a job and kind of start, uh, start my career versus what that job necessarily was. You know. And so what was that job? So the first job I got out of college, uh, well, I actually, um, I, uh, I did a master's straight after finishing. So I did a master's in fluid dynamics. Um, and that was that was actually a sponsored mastership, so I got paid for it. So it was kind of my first job, I suppose. Um, and uh, that was all on two on two phase flow and heat exchangers, which is very exciting. Wow. Um, so I can send you that for nighttime reading yeah, anytime. Do, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, so I did the masters, and then after the masters, I actually took a job with H.W. Wilson. Okay. So H.W. Wilson is a it's actually a um, publishing firm from the Bronx. And they were setting up their first office ever outside of the US. Um, and the goal was to create these um, basically synopses or abstracts of technical literature. So um, you just need an army of people kind of summarizing these articles from all the tech publications. Um, and so it was the first um, office, as I said. So it was, it was very kind of scrappy in the sense of trying to set it up. It was probably like I went straight into managing people. So it's probably baptism of fire in terms of being a manager. I was editor of the engineering database. It was kind of my... Did that come naturally to you then, like dealing with people? Um, I suppose you learn by doing it in a way. Like I'm sure looking back in it, I did some, I was a terrible naive manager maybe, but um, I think, um, I suppose I, I, unknowingly, I probably always live by the golden rule, you know, like treat others the way you want to be treated. And so I think I was always fair, but um, always results oriented. Like our, our team was always that most like, hit its targets ahead of goal and um, so it was always fairly about results and driving performance but doing it in a kind of a human way I think so. And did, like was it natural for you to kind of bring people along and motivate them or you know was it that you scared the bejesus out of them? 
No, I do try, you know, and inspire versus threaten. Mm -hmm. um, so, no, I think it was, um, I suppose, it, what I've always been somebody who, like, you know, for example, even just growing up to college, like I was captain of the canoe club. It's kind of like, I think people always just, um, I think there's a trait in me that just says, come on, we'll go and do it. But mm -hmm. it's not like I'm like telling, shepherding everyone along, like I'm there with the team or whatever that team is. So I think I do lead from the front, but I also lead in a way that's supportive, you know, and that we is focused on like, let's all, we're all in this together and that's whether it's sport or work or whatever, like just let's all, you know, um, have a bit of fun and, and uh, you know, get the job done. So where did you go then from that editorial role? Then I joined Symantec um, and, um, you know, my, I, I was in HWLs for three years and then uh, I was thinking, oh, what will I do with my career? And I was looking at in the, in the Irish Times actually for, for jobs and there was one advertised that had, um, uh, it was in Symantec, it was called Norton at the time, like it was, and I had known Norton very well through my college degree. So I kind of gravitate, you know, it's funny how you gravitate to brand names mm -hmm. really. So I thought, oh, I like Norton, that was a good product and so applied. Um, and got the job there and that was really, um, I suppose, I spent 14 years in Symantec then. Um, so I started here in Blanchettstown with the localization team and then after a year I moved over to the States and uh, when I was in the States then I did a lot of different jobs and got a lot of different opportunities which is really kind of, I suppose, what, um, you know, la laid a great foundation, I suppose, for my career, really. So what part of the States were you based in? Uh, Los Angeles. Oh, very good. Mm, yeah, a bit so nicer than Dublin. <laughs> the weather is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I went over for a year. It's funny how things happen. Again, you know, in terms of being deliberate versus some, some accidental. Um, my boss actually suggested, and it didn't suit me at all, really, personally. I was like, no, no, I just bought a home. Um, and he says, oh, I should just go over for a year. You know, so it was actually in Santa Monica was the office. And Santa Monica is beautiful, if mm -hmm. you've been there. Um, and so I went over and uh, said I'd go there for a year. And... Um, at the end of it, I was just like, oh, then one year grew into two, whatever, and so ended up being 14. It's kind of, you wouldn't, um, I wouldn't have scripted that one. What kind of roles were you working in? Um, um, you know, had you, were you on a path or was it again just going year to year? Um, it was, uh, well, I worked in a, in a group that was quite a large group within the company. So it was like the shared services group for all of the development and engineering teams. So I started off helping, uh, working on a, projects to service the engineering teams in Santa Monica and um, that just is a really great that was a great way to kind of a get connected with the rest of the company um, and it was a very visible role as well so when there was other opportunities I would just put my hand up for them so I think my I suppose it was self um, self-driven in the sense that when I saw interesting opportunities I would offer up you know myself can I can I take that one on or whatever and so I did move into a lot of different areas um, just to you know, basically get broader experience. How important is that, though, to put yourself forward? Because you know, during the course of these conversations, what you may anticipate to crop up would be you know the imposter syndrome of or the fear of putting yourself forward. But what actually is coming through is that there's a, a similar characteristic in pretty much all of the guests so far, which is mm -hmm. you know putting your hand up and saying, mm -hmm. "I'll take a go." Yeah, um, yeah. I think you have to. You know, fear of failure is what I think holds a lot of people back. And I think if you just put, if you hear that little voice in your head, you just have to park it. Um, because really, what is the worst thing that can happen? You know, um, I will say one time I did put my hand up. I went to a startup within the company and that was an unmitigated disaster. So I ended up losing my job. So I suppose oh. when you think about what's the worst thing that can happen, that's probably was was there, if okay. you like. Um, but that would be one one time out of probably 10. 
you know, yeah. in terms of when I went for different initiatives and things like that. And, you know, that one is actually a big learning. You know, I learned a lot from that. You learn from your failures as well as your successes. And so that one um, taught me a lot of life lessons, also taught me a bit of resiliency in myself. But also um, it wasn't actually the worst because you know, I was back working in the same company a week later, you know, because it was just a blip. You know? So it wasn't end of the world, it was no. just end of that. So that's what I'm saying, like when you put your hand up, I, I think it's uh, just a little bit of confidence, but you know, just, yeah, a little bit of confidence and a, and a little bit of risk taking, mm -hmm. I think is always good. Um, and you just try and try and make those risks as measured as, as you can. But I do think like going to the States was a risk, I would say putting, you know, taking some of those roles was a risk, but I'd say overall, um, it all panned out really well, in really well for me anyway. And, you know, has there been any of the moves to date that you've sort of regretted or you do regret putting yourself forward for, or you know, do you look upon them all as learning curves, as you say? Um, well, I think the one where I went to the startup within a large company, that one would be one I would shy away from again. Um, it's just general. Like, I think when, when large companies are trying to drive innovation, they try a lot of different techniques. And one of the techniques they try is like, let's insulate a small group of people and help them be innovative and have this like uh, tech startup within our larger company. But the reality is it's very hard to detach yourself from the mothership. And so as much as we were like an autonomous unit and everything, um, it didn't really work out that way because the mothership is very, still very joined. And so you end up kind of hitting a lot of roadblocks anyway. Um, and so that would be one, I think, you know, it was good. I suppose it was good learning, as I said, but I would be I would suppose it would have made would make me very cautious about doing that same working going into a same kind of uh, setup again, you know. And how did you find being a woman working in those spaces again? Was it male dominated or was there a bit of a balance there? Um, well, tech in general, as you know, and you know, going back, that's going back what twenty years now. It it definitely was um, male bias, but. I never really felt it held me back, you know, um, like one of my roles after maybe I don't know, a year and a half, two years in Los Angeles, um, I took over what was called the, the shared technology team, which is all the most senior engineers in the company uh, who make all of the really complicated components that all the products use. And that was 100% male mm -hmm. um, and 100% like, like brain, brainiacs in terms of like probably the most like the, the most cutting edge engineers in the company. And, um, and so you couldn't compete with that on a, either a gender basis or a um, almost a subject matter expert. Like I'm not a computer scientist. I did a part of it for my degree, but that's not my forte. So it would, but, but really where they lacked was this team really struggled with getting, um, you know, good relationships with all the product teams and good um, partnership and just kind of being a good partner to the rest of the business. And so that's where I went in and they could really see how, oh, Ashling's really good at this kind of more account management style, you know, mm -hmm. and making sure that the team was integrated into the rest of the company and that there was acknowledgement for the great work that they were doing. And also that, you know, there was a balance in terms of what could the team could do and, you know, in terms of their bandwidth and things like that. So I kind of worked on the, the surroundings right, and let the team really, um, you know, be what they are, which is completely experts in their field. And so... So that's a good example of where, yes, I could have felt very threatened, I suppose, by just being a woman, but it never really, never really came up. Um, How important is that in leadership, though, to identify what you're good at and what you're not good at? Because mm. sometimes ego can get in the way and you mm. want to be all things to all people, mm. but that rarely ends well. Yeah. 
Well, I think, yeah, not so much even about being a woman, but I think in any role you have to realise what your strengths are and you have to build a great team around you. So that's always been my philosophy. Like, I love hiring people who are better than me at, at anything, really. Um, and usually targeted in terms of where, what skills in terms of the team needs. But um, I think you have to surround yourself by great people and then you have to let them do their jobs, you know, otherwise, you do, what's the point? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not good for anyone. So I tend to kind of foster a good sense of ownership and leadership within the team. And then as part of that, like I know what I'm really bad at and, you know, we'll try and supplement that through the team as well. Um, and just, you know, focus on what I'm good at. And so what year did you move back to Ireland then? Um, it's about, I keep saying, it's about five and a half years ago, six years ago now. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's very mm-hmm. recent, very recent Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so had you set up, you know, had you a family and set up a, a, an entire life in, in the US? Yeah, like we were very embedded. I had two kids and uh, my daughter had actually come, uh, come back to college. Um, so she graduated in Trinity, she did um, Law Paul. And my son was in, what well, was like, I don't know, what's it called? Um, I get mixed up between all the term primary school basically okay. like he's he was six so uh we um uh yeah so it was a big lift but at the same time like we just decided like we wanted to get back to europe and be a bit closer to family um and so yeah it's been worth it though it's good to be back and so when you are you know weighing up the family considerations with career prospects and so on mm-hmm. you know what what carries the most weight in in your head when your kids are at that age of you know primary school and then college mm-hmm. well I think there's timing is everything like so you don't want to be uprooting your kids close to critical exam time mm-hmm. you know but um, before that it's kind of fair game I think you know so I don't think um, like for my son for sure and then my daughter already had already made the move so education I think is a big factor like you don't want to um, you know you wouldn't want to move right in the middle as I said of critical crit- critical years um, I think the rest of it though it's I mean if you have it's with your other half it's always a negotiation about mm-hmm. what makes sense you know um, like we had looked at moving I had actually gotten headhunted a couple of times to go to different places like Hong Kong or Montreal um, and on a job front it looked really interesting in some of those but um, it just then became the practicality of like mm, really like is it it wasn't a great timing whatever so I think for me it's always a balance, it's definitely a balance, it's not career comes first, you've got to have a, you know, you have a life mm-hmm. outside work, so you have to get a balance and I think it's always a, it's always just making sure that all of those things can actually work um, sympathetically, you know. And so you moved back, did you move back to Dublin? Well initially I moved because the first job um, I took back in Europe was back in Vodafone in London, so, and we were a little bit, um, between like deciding are we going back to Dublin or would London be close enough or etc so um, I moved back for the job anyway my husband stayed in the States because again going back to school Alex was still you know it wasn't summer holidays or whatever so I think I started in January or something and so I started in London moved back and um, started working from there and then we had a Skype family. And so how was that? It was challenging. Irish homework over Skype is a challenge. My husband is not <laughs> it's a good pain at Irish. in the same room, yeah. Oh my gosh! But uh, trying to decipher what 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 my son had written down, which was his Irish homework, and what my my husband thought it was, was mm-hmm. a different. Uh, so that was, they were emotional Skypes. But okay. anyway, we got through that. Um, it was fine. Um, we yeah, it was fine. It wasn't ideal, obviously, but it was. Uh, we worked through it and. Uh, and then when we moved back, um, we just decided, you know, we've moved all that way. It'd be better just to be in Dublin. Like my husband's uh, parents are still alive and thought, you know, be, be close to them. Um, so 
so we packed, we basically situated in Dublin, which meant I was doing the London-Dublin commute. Mm -hmm. um, and that's tough, you know, I yeah. would say. Um, so like living in like a one bed place in, in Labrick Grove and then commuting backwards and forwards, say on a, um, like a Friday or on a Monday. So that, that I think was challenging. Um, From a mental space as well, that mm. has to be tough because you're kind of, you don't really have an anchor in mm -hmm. one place because mm -hmm. your, your mind is in both, but also you get sick of the sight of Dublin Airport as well. Like there's only <laughs> so many times you can go through security yeah. before you go insane. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. I, I will admit it's, it's challenging. So mm -hmm. I admire anyone that's done it for, I did it for a year um, and then took a job in Dublin. But um, no, I found it, it was challenging. Um, and so fair, fair dues to anyone who can pull it off for longer. And during that time, was the work rewarding enough that you felt it was worthwhile or were you doing it just to do it? I think the work, um, it's an interesting job that I took. It was a very senior job, it was a great job. Um, it was in group and it was to drive um, a customer experience focus across all of the oper operating units. So Vodafone has 22 operating units and so I was um, kind of a consultant internally. But um, the challenging part of it I think was really you are a consultant internally. I work for group and so I would go out and just try and you know work with the other um, heads of customer experience to really drive that you know through key initiatives but you're not actually doing the work, you know? And so that's what I missed. Mm -hmm. Like I actually like doing the work. So um, so that, yeah, on balance, it wasn't a great fit for me. So after a year, I decided to um, actually join Sage as their head of customer experience. And that was much more actually doing, you know, the lift internally and, and really driving that focus. So, And is consumer or customer consumer experience, is that being the go-between for the consumer and then the company and you're trying to make everybody happy or what exactly does that job entail? Uh, well it's different in most companies mm -hmm. so it gets used a lot in a lot of different ways but in the context that I was working in um, towards the latter half of um, Symantec and then in those roles it was really about making sure that as you do you know when you get when companies get bigger they can tend to lose sight of why they're in business which is at the end of the day to provide value to an end user. Mm -hmm. And so it's really about reinstilling that in a business and making sure that every aspect of the business is aware of their impact on the customer um, and what they can do to make that experience much better. So that's, that was what those roles typically were. Okay. And so then when did you join Airbnb? In February 2014. So I just had my five-year anniversary. Which is very exciting. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and so when you joined, how big was the company? Like, did you know what you were getting yourself in for and what role did you enter? Yeah, no, it's a short <laughs> answer. Um, so the company overall, my first day actually was flying to San Francisco for what we have as an annual gathering called One. Okay. And um, there were 600 employees at that time. And so my first day was in this whole thing with Brian, Joe and Nate on stage talking about the company and whatever. It was really exciting. Um, so it was 600, it was about 75 here uh, in Dublin. And you could tell, I mean, obviously, you know, through the interview process, I knew it was, you know, it was a fast-paced company, high growth, founder-led, and all of those things appealed to me, so mm -hmm. I went in eyes wide open. But um, I suppose the reality then, when you, when you are in, in the thick of that, is that it's incredibly fast-paced and incredibly high growth. And uh, with the founders, like, they're continually trying to um, you know, push the needle in terms of where we're going. So mm -hmm. I think, uh, um, so yeah, it was, I kind of knew, sort of knew what I was getting into, but it's definitely, um, like outpaced even my expectations, I suppose. Yeah, it's incredible how companies like that have grown so fast. It seems to suit your interests, given you know how much you've traveled and mm -hmm. the experiences that mm -hmm. you seem to like. You must get a good satisfaction from the job that you have now. 
Yeah, I mean, um, what appealed to me about when I met actually met Brian um, and the, like uh, it met a lot of people in the interview process, and but Brian in particular when he was talking about the mission of the company, mm-hmm. um, it just really appealed to me because it wasn't about like we we're going to have we're going to be the biggest accommodation provider. It was like we're going to create a world where people can feel like they belong. You know, I was like, wow, that's amazing. You know, and we're going to do that by by opening up travel experiences to people that are more local. I thought, wow, that's really cool, you know. And so that definitely resonated with me. Um, and then uh, just also the, the fact that the founders have been so focused on the employee experience as well as the customer experience. So spending an enormous amount of time making sure that it's a great environment for people to work, that you have a sense of belonging at work. And then that permeates then into, you know, um, doing that for our community. So, um, so a lot of that, it does, it did kind of, you know, completely appeal to my sense of purpose and... and uh, Travel as well, as you can tell, yeah, definitely an interest. So, yeah, it all came together really nicely in terms of actually being a fit for me. And as well, I'm there five years now, so it's uh, it hasn't changed in that sense of fit, which is really great, and uh, living up to kind of what I hoped it would be. So, and does the pressure change when the company becomes more visible? Because you know, the way if you work for a company that nobody really knows, and you're the mm-hmm. CEO, you can kind of do things mm-hmm. your own way, and you're not really answerable to you know, the media or the Twitter at you, or even your customers are not mm-hmm. as accessible or you're not as, as accessible to them. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that pressure as the company kind of grows? Um, I think Brian, our CEO, does a great job of having us focus on our core jobs. Mm-hmm. Like, and you know, you just get on with doing the right thing. Um, you know, one of our, one of his ambitions is that we're a 21st century company. So we're not, maniacally focused on just one aspect of our delivery. It's about serving our employees, our shareholders, our hosts and our guest communities, um, and the communities we, that we are in really well. So with that multifaceted, yes, there's kind of, um, it's more complex, but it actually makes you really focus on the things that matter. And so I think we just keep doing that, like focus on the things that matter, uh, focus on the community, and focus on um, delivering great experiences. And so. Um, that kind of keeps you grounded, I think, mm-hmm. no matter what. And I think as well, the founders, again, I'm super impressed by because they always are rooted into the mission and um, just making sure we deliver on it. And has your management style changed over the years? Have you noticed that you've either become more of a hard ass or are you more like you laid back or has it changed at all? Um, I suppose you do get more wisdom, like the more... Like the more experience you have, you just have seen a few things play out before. Mm-hmm. So I would say it's a bit more mature in the sense that I, I think I'm better now at getting ahead of challenges than wait, like having them hit me, you know, because you just sort of go, oh, it's kind of like being a sailor. Like if you're a good sailor, you'll see it, you'll see something about to go before it happens. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I think I'm better at that, which means I think I'm a better leader because just life experiences has given me a bit more... I suppose because I worked in so many different roles as well in the States, I do have a lot of, like, I know enough to be dangerous in an awful lot of areas because um, I worked in a lot of areas across the, the company. And so I've got a lot of expertise that kind of, I think, helps inform my decision making. So I hope that I'm a better leader because I, you know, I'm using that wisdom wisely. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I've changed my style, though. I think my style has pretty much um, stayed consistent, which is, as I said, you know, I... I do live by the golden rule, um, I'm always fair, um, and I do like to inject a bit of fun, you know, like I think, you know, we spend a long time in work, so you don't want it to be too, <laughs> uh, too much of a drag to go in every day, so I think, you know, you really do need to make sure it's a great atmosphere, and I do like, um, I love building teams, like I 
So I've always been focused on the team, trying to get a great team together, try and make sure that it's a high performing team in the sense that we all have each other's back. Um, and so no, I think those, those components, if you like, of my leadership have sort of stayed constant and have just been a bit wiser. And so what are the traits then when you are hiring, you know, do you look at um, academia, do you look at experience or do you look to meet someone face to face and then make a call on it that way? Um, yeah, that, that process has evolved a little bit, I think, maybe just through technology, etc. So obviously being a global organisation, I do a lot of interviews over WebEx, you know, um, and I think they're okay, like they're better than phone, but it's hard really to um, build rapport with somebody. So we have a like what we our approach now has evolved into like we'll definitely do webex interviews and um but we'll have the finalists come and they do a pitch um so it's usually a presentation about either whatever area they're coming into like so we just hired um a great guy who's going to lead our product efforts and he uh he he gave like had to do a pitch on what his vision would be in terms of building out our platform and um so you know it really that i think is a really good way to just well, first of all, see people think on their feet, but also just to kind of see on the chemistry and the fit with the team. And so, so what I look for is definitely, obviously, you have to look for functional expertise. Um, but we, we also focus as much on what we call the core values. So we have four core values that um, there's special interviews for. And so it's, a 50, like it's, it's, it's as important as your functional fit. And the core values are kind of what I suppose brings a golden thread between us all. Like we're all... We're all very diverse, but um, s somehow have the same sort of value system, I think. Um, and so, um, so we do that. So that's a key component. So there's the values, which is the fit with the basically the mission, and etc. There's the functional fit. And then there's also um, skills balancing on the team. You know, so I've got a very senior team now. They're great. Um, but, you know, there'll be areas you go, oh, you know, we don't have anybody, you know, from... Like with this expertise, you know, mm -hmm. um, and so it'll also kind of while you want a person to a particular role, you'll also be looking, sort of I suppose like for jam on it in the sense of is there other kind of skills that they could bring in uh, as well, and so. And so you come obviously from a scientific engineering background. There are a lot of people who would discount themselves from working in the tech space because they're more artsy or you know mm -hmm. that they don't have mm -hmm. that engineering or chemistry or whatever degree. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's a shift happening in technology now whereby there is the space for that different type of brain? Because even if you just look at artificial intelligence, you know, yes, it can do this, that and the other, but an artistic brain might say, well, it can do this entirely different thing then mm -hmm. as well. Absolutely. Like, uh, I mean, and if, uh, in case you don't know, like our two founders are from RISD, like the Rhode Island School of Design. So they're mm -hmm. two uh, um, uh, designers, you know, um, industrial design of that. So, um, like so they what they had like the interesting thing like nobody would have said that they like in growing you hear Brian's stories like his mother would not have believed he'd be running a sort of a tech if you like tech hospitality company um but the core that they bring to practically every conversation definitely in the formative years was their design thinking so they're always about designing for the customer and designing for the end outcome that you want to get and so that design thinking like permeated into the way they built the product permeated into how they engage with the community in the early days like Joe going out and knocking on people's doors and taking pictures you know I, th I think all of that just led into a different mindset that I think if you um, if you're too focused in terms of like the bits and bytes can get lost so obviously they found Nate uh, who was a, a friend they had met in college 
And so Nate is the, is the engineer who built the product. Mm -hmm. um, and there's hilarious stories of the two of them talking to Nate, because Nate would be very logical and practical, and the two of them would come back with some crazy ideas. And, you know, he'd ultimately build it, but like they were the, always the ones kind of building the creative edge. And I see, you see that more. So a big theme right now throughout tech um, and every company is design thinking. So we've just led a design initiative in my area, which is um, community support. And that's focusing on, can we design the best customer experience for the community when they need help? But it was all led by design. So, um, and we had these really creative, uh, we've got a great design team uh, that work for, um, on the SUP team, the products team um, for community support. And they did an amazing job working. We um, had an agency um, co-lead with them. And so between them, it was all thinking about like design and how you're purposeful about um, creating a great experience. And so there wasn't, there wasn't an engineer to be seen mm -hmm. in terms of that effort. Obviously, then we have to turn it into a roadmap. And, and that's where the rest of the team now are actually building this out um, with the engineering and design and content team. So, so I think it's just a, it's actually completely essential um, uh, to success in business now to have that kind of balance, as you say, of not just the creativity, but the approach in terms of really thinking about the end user and how you can build um, something great for them. And, you know, we touched upon it at the beginning with your own story. What do you think can be done to try and tackle the gender balance, which is still like sort of weighed one way um, when it comes to the, the STEM subjects? Um, well, it has to start early on, you know, um, and I think I just think the curriculum and the education system have to have to drive it. You know, like there has to be uh, great teachers. Um, they have to have a great curriculum that they can follow, um, and you know, just has to be continually actively promoted. You know, um, I think it's tough. I think what can draw it back is, you know, again, you know, as I said, I was a bit different to in my interests, I say, than the rest of my family, but I was never held back. Like nobody said, like, well, you shouldn't do science because whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, that's not the case in every family. You know, I think there's a, a sort of a bias towards kind of the known. And so somewhere around educating, um, I think, families in general and parents about like being open-minded in terms of the avenues that their kids could take. But that has to be supported by a school that can then support those interests and um, have great teachers and a great, as I said, curriculum that can move it through. So I think they're the, the key ingredients. Um, and once you have that, then it's fertile ground. Like ki kids are, you see it in the Young Scientist exhibition. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the amount of... Uh, and it's great, you see the gender mix there, like there's a there's um, huge diversity, which but is that's great. That's what intrigues me though, is that you see that at primary and secondary level, mm -hmm. and then when it gets to third level, I don't know if it's a confidence thing or what, mm. but there does seem to be sort of a breakaway in terms mm -hmm. of those who go on to stay in that realm mm. versus those who maybe choose the safer path, as you say. Yeah, and, th and that's where, you know, career guidance teachers as well have mm. a lot of, of influence. Um, like my career guidance teacher was the one who told me about Atlantic College for something. So they, they have huge impact in terms of where they can channel people. And I do think that's where, you know, again, because not everybody knows, like you're, you know, you don't really know what you're going to do. And so you're very influenced by your surroundings and by your um, advisors. And so they have a great, like a really key role to kind of open people's eyes into, you know, you don't have to go down that traditional path there's another path which you could try and just give people the confidence to apply I mm -hmm. think is half the battle um yeah it's a, it's a, it is a it is puzzling though yeah, why it's a strange one. yeah um, and then in terms of yourself with the job that you have how do you switch off do you still go out on your boat around the place I don't have a boat anymore oh. so I'll just uh no I crew I try and crew um 
and so uh, I um, I don't get out enough though. Like I'm mm -hmm. because I travel a lot um, because of a global role. It's very hard. You need to be fairly consistent. So um, I haven't done as much of that. But how do I switch off? I, exercise is really important to me. So um, I try and do some exercise and. Um, and that keeps me going. If I can get out sailing, that is my release. Um, but also have a paddleboard, and so if it's not windy and I'll get absolutely hammered on the board, <laughs> I'll just take out. I, I find that like really meditative. So water, I would definitely gravitate towards. Um, and do you enjoy the travel aspect of your job? Um, I think. Do I enjoy the travel aspect? I think um, I enjoy meeting the teams in the different locations, and it's a great global team. And I do think it's interesting that you see. Uh, teams across the globe and you get to see local um, you know just like a, a business in a very local environment so I, I really like that I mean going through airports and sitting for 10 hours on a flight doesn't really add an awful lot of value but uh, you get to I suppose it's like anything you have to make the best of it so mm -hmm. um, I'm addicted now to d downloading Netflix series and so I'll get through a whole series so you just probably from your flight you see this but like yeah so I think you just make the most of it um, and I do love planes with Wi-Fi because I like I work away on a plane if I have Wi-Fi but um, so yeah no I switch I have no problem switching off I just there's probably I, I would say I'd like more hours in a week to be able to do it but and how are you finding the juggle between sort of family life and then the travel that you do? Because mm. regardless of how old your kids are, it's still nice to, you know, just chat to people that you're related to. <laughs> between the hours on seven and nine, I do not. Um, yeah, I agree. I think um, the travel does take a toll. How we've managed it throughout the years has been we've had um, a, a nanny. Um, we tried like a lot of different variances of somebody who would pick up Hannah or drop off and and then my husband travels as well so when the two of us had these synchronized calendars which was um, a nightmare to try and make sure because I would invariably forget like oh I'm going to San Francisco next week like, I'm going to Guatemala or whatever so we've had a few like that and we just said you know what um, even though Alex is 14 now so he can definitely fend for himself it's just the logistics mm -hmm. you know so that's how we've managed it we've probably had a, um, a live-in for the last, like, I don't know, many years, like, last few years in LA and then here, um, just to help with that, you know. Um, so that's been a huge help. And then, you know, it is, you know, we just have to, you have to kind of plan, you know. So yeah. my, myself, my husband have the shared calendar now. We're just working out all of our, trying to uh, work out all of our shared travel and then holidays and things like that, so. <laughs> and, you know, the job that you're in now, as you said, it's so fast-paced and the the entire industry is changing mm -hmm. day by day, second by second. Are you, is this where you want to be? Is, uh, can you see yourself doing this for another five years? Or do you kind of get itchy after a while and start looking at new opportunities? <laughs> um, no, I think, uh, you know, we call it sort of, I don't know, call it Airbnb years. We feel like every year is about four, you know, just because of the pace. Um, it, and so much happens in a year. Mm -hmm. Like we, we look back, we always do a retrospective at the end of a year and we go, Oh my gosh, like you, you do, I don't know, we, we were talking about like what you would probably take five years to do, we do in a year, you know, like we just pack a lot in and we get through a lot, which is fantastic. And if you like delivery and you like building things, it's, you know, there's no better place. So um, I think uh, for me, I've just been like, I've been with, as I said, I've been with the company five years and it's just every year has been a new challenge. So it hasn't felt like five years, you know, like mm -hmm. you just look back and you go, oh my gosh, like, can't believe like the the company I joined and where I'm now is is completely different 
Um, last year we went through that big redesign so that was again another opportunity to kind of okay like how do we kind of continue to push forward our ambition um, and out of that I took on um, more responsibility so I have another area like the product team that supports uh, the community support team under my remit now so that's expanded my uh, scope which is exciting so I'm actually spending a lot of time now with the product team and the engineering team which is I always worked with them as partnerships but now really trying to help um, create the connective tissue and kind of really accelerate our progress. So that's actually another, um, I suppose, accelerator in terms of my interest. So I think as long as you keep, and this would be the same in my career in, um, in other firms, like as long as you keep kind of reinventing what you do or kind of adding to it or mm -hmm. mixing it up, it never really gets stale. So it definitely isn't stale for me now. And so um, is this what I want to do? I think I have a, we have a huge ambition and I want to land the ambition. So I don't know if that's two years or three years or five years. Um, quicker would be better because mm -hmm. I, we're all impatient to, to get where we want to be but um, I really am invested in the vision and the mission that we've laid out and so um, I definitely want to see that over the line and uh, we'll see how long that takes. Awesome stuff, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Ah, good. Thank you very much. Oh, great. The hour flies by. Was that an hour? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, just under an hour. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Squeaky shoes here. <laughs> <laughs>